Hey there. In today's episode of the Redeeming God podcast, we're going to look at why prostitutes might be better situated than your pastor to enter the kingdom of God. Hope that little intro sparked your curiosity. We're going to be looking at Matthew 21, 31 today, where Jesus says that tax collectors and prostitutes are closer to the kingdom of God than are the religious leaders he was speaking to. So we're going to talk about that text today. Before we do that, though, we're going to talk about a current event in the news and look at a letter from a reader. So that's where we are headed today. And I'm your teacher for this podcast, Jeremy Myers. I do most of my writing and teaching at redeeminggod.com. Thank you for joining me today. So the current event news I want to discuss briefly is what is going to happen tomorrow in the Supreme Court of the United States. So Joe Biden, of course, is in the White House. Everybody knows that. But tomorrow, February 19th, today is February 18th, which, by the way, there's a rover Landing on Mars today, I thought about talking about that. I'm pretty excited about that, watching that with great interest. Uh, But tomorrow, February 19th, I thought this was a little more important, the Supreme Court of the United States is going to decide whether or not they're going to hear five pending election fraud cases. All right, so um, as you know, uh, Donald Trump and his team, uh, uh, many different people around the country have challenged the results of the 2020 election. And uh, five, or actually there's six of these cases that are still working their way through the courts. Anyway, the Supreme Court tomorrow, Friday, February 19th, is going to decide whether or not they're going to hear five of these cases. And I can't predict what they're going to do. They've already had the opportunity in the past to hear some of these cases, and they have declined to hear them. My hunch is that uh, they're going to continue down that path. Um, I'm very disappointed in that. I think they should hear them. Uh, And in every case, when courts, either the Supreme Court or lower courts, have declined to hear cases, when cases have been brought before them, they're always declined on some sort of silly technicality, you know, lack of standing, or it wouldn't matter now, the election's over, or, you know, you should have brought this up before the election, uh, rather than after the fact, sort of an idea. And uh, I think, I wish the Supreme Court would bring them up, and, and my hunch is that they are going to decline all five. Um, but I think that would be a mistake if they declined them. Uh, yes, the election probably cannot be overturned at this point. I cannot imagine the chaos that would be introduced to our country if the Supreme Court took up the cases and found out that major election fraud had indeed occurred and Donald Trump did in fact win the presidential race. I mean, imagine what would happen to this country if, if, if they discovered that in the process. So, um, for that very reason, they're probably going to turn down the cases, but I think they should take them up. And here's why. Look, the 2020 election is over, uh, but we have elections every two years, uh, major elections every two years. And so 2020 election is not the last election ever. There's more coming up. And we need to make sure to, that uh, as a country, there is faith restored in our electoral process, in our election process. Uh, we need to make sure that going forward, uh, there is uh, people have confidence that that the elections are going to be safe and secure, that their vote, that their voice is going to be heard, that their vote is going to be counted, and uh, that the Constitution is going to be followed. Right now, 
the majority of the country does not feel that that's the case. Uh, there's lots of Democrats even that do not feel that the, the elections are safe and secure. I mean, all you have to do is listen to uh, Democrat talking points from the last four years, from 2016 all the way through 2020. They were convinced, many still are to this day, that somehow or another, Russia hacked the election, colluded with Donald, Donald Trump to help him win the election, whatever. Okay, so that's the Democrat side of things. That's not safe and secure. If you think that other countries can hack or can collude with our government, with our leaders, uh, to hack an election to, um, you know, the Russia collusion thing. And then on the Republican side of things, lots of people think there was massive election fraud that took place in 2020. Uh, and who knows, maybe even going back decades I, my suspicion is that there was, if there was election fraud in 2020, and I think there was, by the way, uh, I think there was also election fraud, massive election fraud in 2016 uh, in favor of Hillary Clinton. And there just wasn't enough of it for Donald Trump, um, for, for Hillary to beat Donald Trump. Uh, so I think they decided to fix that this time around. And there was enough. Now, that's my opinion. I could be wrong. In fact, I would love to be wrong. Uh, on this, I would love for their for the cases to be heard uh, in court, for the evidence to be presented, uh, for there to be an audit of the voting machines, a signature audit, and all of these all of these cases, and um, to find out. Oh boy, you know what? Turns out I was wrong. There is no election fraud, widespread election fraud, in our country. That would be great, and I would say, well, fine then. I guess the country wanted Biden, but. Um, as it stands, the the evidence has not been presented in any court, and so all the people saying that uh, Trump has lost all of his court cases is that's not that's not true. Uh, the evidence has never been presented. By the way, I find it very interesting. Gavin Newsom over there in California, um, you know, there's a recall effort for him. They needed to gather what is it, 1.5 million. Maybe it's 15 million. I can't remember how many uh, signatures they needed to gather to recall him. Anyway, they were able to gather, uh, I think it was 1.5 million signatures. And of course, now he and his team are calling for a, guess what? A signature audit. <laughs> uh, the hypocrisy. Um, they, want a, they want a signature audit of people who, who want him out of office. But if it had gone the other way, uh, you know, nobody wants, no Democrat wants a signature audit of the votes in Pennsylvania, say, uh, uh, from the 2020 presidential election. Uh, I, I think, look, all of us should want signature audits in all cases. If there's question of, of wrongdoing, of fraud, one way or the other, anybody who loves the truth would want to see that truth made known. Okay? And that's what I want. I want the truth known regardless of which way it goes. In all cases, look, if there were people down in California who signed twice or three times or 15 or 150 times, uh, I want to know. And uh, those those signatures should not count. Same with uh, a presidential election. OK, so anyway, all that to say, I'm excited to see tomorrow what the Supreme Court does with these election fraud cases. I hope they take them up, but we will see. Uh, and by the way, if you want to know some of the states that have election issues, questions about uh, whether what they did was constitutional or not. I put a little chart on my website for this podcast episode on Matthew 21, 31, and you can go look at that. Uh, there's six uh, states there, Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, Nevada, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin that all have issues and questions. Honestly, all 50 states. I live in Oregon. There's major issues and questions here about the legitimacy of our elections. 
uh, that go back decades, really. Um, but those are the six ones that's in the news and everybody's attention is on. And you can see that, for example, in Arizona, Bar Biden's uh, victory margin was just over 10,000 votes. But there is a potential of nearly 250,000 illegal votes in Arizona. Don't you think we should consider those? In Georgia, Biden's victory margin of victory was just uh, nearly 12,000, just under 12,000 votes. But there are those possible 600,000 illegal votes. Okay, so, um, you know, these consider voting irregularities, out-of-state voters who voted in, in Georgia, uh, ghost voters, you know, basically voters who don't even exist, felon voters, uh, they're not supposed to vote. If you want to change that law, fine. Uh, even dead voters. There's 10,000 people, dead voters, uh, who voted in Georgia. Now, look, I admit, maybe all of those voted for Trump and Biden's victory was even larger right? That's a possibility, isn't it? Wouldn't you want to know that? If 10,000 dead people, you know, their family members or relatives or somebody had dead people vote, regardless of which way they voted, don't you want to know that, that you know, those votes have not been counted? Anyway, uh, all that chart there is, is on uh, my website for this podcast episode. And you can go look at that if you are curious. I really, really hope that the Supreme Court does their job to make sure that in the future, all 50 states follow the Constitution so that we can have safe and secure elections. Okay, so uh, that's sort of the common, uh, the news, the current event news item for the day. Let's go on to our mailbag. There's a letter in your mailbox. <laughs> all right, George Carlin, thank you for that. Let's look at this uh, message that came in this last week. Uh, the, the person has to be anonymous, so I'm not going to say his name, but here's what he wrote. Hi, I'm 33 years old. I grew up in a Christian home. My dad was a pastor. I am not a Christian. I have had a handful of false conversions in my life. Ever since the coronavirus, I have been on this journey of trying to figure out how to get saved. It is all I think about. I have not been eating as much as I should be and have lost a lot of weight. I am barely making it through each day right now. I believe there's a really good chance things are setting up for the end times. I am so scared of going to hell. I've had so much confusion about repentance and faith. Since the beginning of this journey, I have been praying to God to help me understand repentance and faith. I believe he is helping me understand repentance. My dad found a book called Turn and Live, The Power of Repentance by Robert Wilkin. By the way, it's a great book. I've read it myself. I used to work for Bob Wilkin down in Texas, and I respect uh, what, what he teaches and what they do there at the Gracie Evangelical Society. Anyway, um, and, and by the way, in my Gospel Dictionary online course, we will be having a lesson on repentance, and I will be using that book and what he teaches in it uh, to a large extent for that, for that entry. Anyway, moving on to the letter. I now understand that repenting of sins has nothing to do with how we get saved. That's true. All right. I am confused about faith, though. My dad told me that it is not just believing the facts. That is part of it, but it is hearing the gospel, being fully persuaded that the facts of the gospel are true, and making a decision to put your trust in Jesus Christ as your payment for your sins. That is the decision I want to make. I have extreme OCD. It affects every area of my life. I'm not even able to work because of it. 
I'm not sure how to make the decision to put my trust in Jesus Christ as the payment for my sins. I'm so scared of thinking I am making the decision and really just agreeing to the facts that the facts are true. I'm not sure what to do or how to work through this. Also, if you could be praying for me, I would really appreciate it. Okay, so um, I do get a lot of questions like this from readers and listeners all over the world, but uh, this one is, um, I decided to answer it because it is, is new and fresh. It came in this week. And uh, if you're listening, I, I sent you an email. If, you, if you're a listener to the podcast and you sent this in, I did send you an email with a brief answer. I want to know, let you know, first of all, though, that I am praying for you and I will be praying for you. Okay. Uh, I, I understand that what you're dealing with and facing and struggling with is extremely worrisome and stressful. You want to make sure that you know that when you die, you're going to spend eternity with God. You want to know where you stand with God on a day-to-day basis. So these questions are extremely difficult. The OCD issue is going to make those concerns worse. And I hope that you're seeing somebody or taking some sort of medication or something that can help with OCD. I struggle with a bit of OCD myself, um, but uh, that's going to make these worries and concerns much worse. And I hope that there's something that can be done about that. Oddly enough, I sometimes think that bad theology makes OCD even worse. It's a bad spiral. OCD causes us to worry about bad theological ideas we have, and then those bad theological ideas mess with our brain and um, make us worry even more and therefore make amplify the, the problems of OCD. So uh, hopefully what I tell you can help you with the, the theology side of things, but then probably help get a doctor or somebody to help you with the, the psychological aspects of OCD. Uh, anyway, to your question, I am not at all fond of this concept of making a decision for Christ. Uh, you, you can't find that concept, that idea, that terminology in the Bible. I know it was very popular because of the Billy Graham Crusades. He even had a magazine for a while called Decision. And um, I, I, I know that in evangelism, it's very, very popular for people to invite their audience to make a decision for Christ. But it's confusing for the reasons you have said. I mean, how do you know whether you've made that decision or not? Uh, and and how do you know that, that, that your decision, quote-unquote decision, is not just the same thing as agreeing to what you've heard, agreeing to the facts? So I'm not fond of this terminology of making a decision for Christ. Again, you're not fond of it either because that is the point of your struggle. It's just confusing. So I do, I, I do <laughs> I'm very hesitant to disagree with your dad on this. Uh, and no matter what, I don't want you to get into an argument or a debate with him. I love that book that he found about repentance from uh, from Bob Wilkin. I highly recommend it and encourage it. One of the books that I've written, which also might help, is called What is Faith? And it's available wherever books are sold. It, it defines faith and looks at several passages from Scripture about faith. But in that book, I argue uh, for the idea that faith is, in fact— mental assent, that faith is, in fact, agreeing that something is true, agreeing with the facts presented. If you know something is true, that is, if you agree, if you have mental assent to it, then you have believed. 
right? And so that's sort of what I argue in the book, and I, I go to great lengths to defend that and show how this works in theology and helps us understand various passages of Scripture as well. I have no problem with saying that faith is mental assent. I understand why people are concerned with that. I mean, maybe your dad is concerned with that as well. And, and I have the same concerns, okay? The concern is this. If we say that faith is just mental assent, then what's to stop people from making a mental ascent and then not making any changes, right? It's this whole head faith versus heart faith idea um, that, that some people like to talk about. And by the way, there's no such, there's no biblical difference between head faith and heart faith. That's not a biblical concept. Faith is faith. It's not in your head. It's not in your heart. Um, anyway, this mental ascent idea comes from that. And the concern is if people just believe things, but they don't make any changes in their life, then what good is it? And I understand where that's coming from. I have the same concern. But the solution to this problem is not to say faith is not mental assent. When we go down that path, we end up with the problems that you're facing. Uh, well, how do I know if I've really believed? How do I know if I've made a decision? What if I start living sinfully? What if I, what if I rebel? What if I, you know, I might be doing okay now, but I've made so many decisions, quote-unquote decisions for Christ in the past. I've, quote-unquote, committed my life to Jesus so many times in the past, and then, then it's good for two days or two weeks or two months or even two years, but then I fail and I fall and I sin, and, and that just proves that I probably never really made a decision, never really truly made that commitment in the first place. And you see what happens? Because of our moral failures and our sin, it starts us to think, to worry that maybe our decision, our mental ascent, whatever it was, two days, two weeks ago, two months ago, two years ago, might not have been real. That's the problem with saying that faith is not just mental ascent. It's much better, and this is what I argue in my book and on my podcast and a lot of my writings, it's much better to just go and flat out admit it, that what the Bible basically says is faith is mental ascent. Faith is agreeing. Your dad is right. Faith is not just hearing something, okay? Faith is hearing and agreeing that something is true. It's mental ascent. You understand it, and you say, yeah, that's true. That is faith. Now, the concern then is what stops people from just sinning all they want? Well, all sorts of things stop people from sinning all they want, from going down the path of rebellion and, and disobedience, okay? Such as um, the pain and destruction and, and, and just problems that sin will bring into your life. I, I, I talk about this in various courses and, and uh, places on my website and uh, my, uh, my discipleship group. Uh, for example, I think I have a lesson in... The, um, what's the name of that course? One of my courses, I have a lesson called Go Ahead and Sin All You Want, something like that. It's sort of the idea of, uh, you can think of sin as stabbing a knife in your leg, okay? Can you, can you stab a knife in your leg? Well, sure, if you want to, you could get a knife out of the kitchen and stab it in your leg. But the question is, why would you want to? It's going to cause you great pain. That's the same way to approach sin. Can you believe in Jesus for eternal life and still go sin all you want? Well, sure, you could, but why would you want to? Once you understand what sin does, once you understand how painful it is going to be, once you understand the damage and destruction it's going to bring into your life, those are the reasons that you keep from sinning. Once you see how much better it is to follow Jesus on the path of discipleship, that that's where real joy and blessing and satisfaction and fruitfulness uh, comes from in life. Uh, that is some of the reasons that you're going to keep from sin, not some fear that you might have not really believed in the first place, 
uh, sometime in the past. Okay. So all that to say, look, I'm completely fine. In fact, I endorse the idea that faith is mental assent. Jesus says, if you believe in me, you have everlasting life. So if you understand what Jesus is saying, that basically he is the only way you can get eternal life. You understand what he's saying and you agree with that? I hope you agree with that. Do you agree that Jesus is the only way you can have everlasting life? You can't work for it. You can't earn it. You can't buy it. You can't ever be good enough to get eternal life for yourself. If you agree with that, yeah, that makes sense, Jeremy. I agree with that. Then guess what? You have believed in Jesus for everlasting life. It's that simple. Okay? You understand what Jesus said, and you agree with it. Guess what? You have believed. Therefore, you have everlasting life. Why? Because Jesus promised it. It's what he says, and Jesus is not a liar. All right? So, for, for the person, for you who wrote this letter into me, guess what? Uh, if you have believed that Jesus gives you everlasting life, that you can't get it any other way than through him, <laughs> I have news for you. You are a Christian. I know you wrote in your email that you said you're not, but guess what? If you believe in Jesus for eternal life, then Jesus thinks you are a Christian, and I'm not going to disagree with Jesus. If Jesus gives you eternal life, who are you or I to argue with him, right? Because you believed in him. So um, don't allow, and I'm not sure why you think you're not. You said you've had false conversions in the past. I suspect most of the time when people think they have false conversions, it's, it's because they've had a moral failure. They believed, and then they backslid. Fell back into sin. Oh, I must not have really believed. And so the cycle continues. Don't let moral failures cause you to think that Jesus didn't give you eternal life. There's different issues going on when we have moral failures. And guess what? As long as we live in fear that maybe I didn't really believe, maybe I didn't truly make a decision for Jesus, as long as we live with that fear, we will continually live in this never-ending cycle of failure, repentance, failure, repentance, failure, repentance. I'm not, I, 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 he loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. I, I'm really a Christian, now I'm not. Or why, I, ne I never was in the, okay? You need, the very first step of discipleship is understanding that you are safe and secure in the arms of Jesus forever. No matter what, he will not let you fall. Once you get that in place, then some of your OCD can disappear because you no longer have to worry about that. It's no longer stress, it's no longer concern. Jesus has got you. Now you can start to move forward in faith with him without fear, knowing that, yeah, you're going to mess up. And guess what? That's okay. He still loves you. He still forgives you. He's going to come alongside you, pick you up off the mat and say, let's keep, let's keep moving. Let's keep going forward. Okay? So um, that, that's, that's basically how I answer all of this question. I hope that all makes sense. Bottom line is this. Jesus promises that he gives eternal life to anyone who believes in him for it. If you agree with that, if you say, yeah, I can't get eternal life other than through Jesus, guess what? You have eternal life because you've believed, you have mental assent that what Jesus said there is true. Right? So that's my answer to this question from the mailbag. Thank you so much for sending in your question. If you are listening to this and you have a question, you can do that by joining my email list and just responding to any email I send to you with your question. Or better yet, maybe even uh, just send in a, a question through my contact form on my website. All right. With all that in mind, let's move on to our discussion of Matthew 2131.
So in my Gospel Dictionary online course, I have a lesson, or at least I will have a lesson, on the Kingdom of God. The Gospel Dictionary online course contains hundreds of hours of teaching on 52 keywords of the Gospel. Uh, eventually, when I get it all finished, the goal is that you can then work your way through it, uh, one word uh, for each week of the year. So, um, but I've been working on the course for a couple of years now, and I probably have two years left or so before I'm done with it. It's taking forever. Anyway, in the entry, in the uh, lesson on the kingdom of God, one of the passages I discuss is Matthew 21, 31. And here is what the second part of that verse says. Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. Okay, so I started off this podcast by saying that uh, prostitutes are closer to the kingdom of God than your pastor. <laughs> and um, that's what Jesus is saying here, uh, potentially. Okay, uh, In some ways, Jesus is saying it's better to be a tax collector, or we could even call him thief, uh, than it is to be, or a prostitute, than it is to be a spiritual leader or a Bible teacher. I'm a Bible teacher. I'm a spiritual leader of sorts. I've been a pastor in the past. Um, I lead people in various ways. So this is a verse of concern to me. <laughs> um, and that's what Jesus is saying in Matthew 21, 31. So we want to discuss what he is talking about in context and uh, see if we can come away with some lessons here to help us. Because if you're like me, we all want to enter the kingdom of God, right? So in the context, Jesus is speaking to some chief priests and elders of the Jewish people. These are the religious leaders. Um, and they question him about his authority, okay? He's been saying things and doing things that eh, they don't really like. And so they come to him and say, Jesus, uh, by what authority do you do these things? That's Matthew 21, uh, 23. And so in response, he tells them a parable of the two sons. Uh, this is not to be confused with the parable of the prodigal son. That's two sons in that story also. But uh, here, this is the parable of two sons. In this parable, there's a man that has a vineyard, and he asks his two sons to go work in the vineyard. Hey, boys, I got some work out there for you to do. Please go do it today. The first son says, I'm not going to do it, Dad. But then later, he decides, you know what, I'm going to go do it, and he does. All right. The second son, though, says, sure thing, Dad, I'll get right to it. <laughs> he says he will do it, but then, for whatever reason... He decides not to. So Jesus tells that story, and then he asks the religious leaders, uh, which of the two sons actually did what the father asked? And of course, the correct answer is the first son. You know, he might have initially said, no, I'm not going to do it. But the thing is, he actually did do it. And of course, that is preference. If those are the, now, obviously, God would want someone to say, yes, I'm going to do it. And then they actually go do it. But between those two choices... That first son is preferable, someone who actually does what God wants, regardless of what they say. All right, so um, that's, that, that's sort of the story here. Now, previously, I have discussed Matthew 13, 24 to 30, and I, I, in the Gospel Dictionary, we looked at the entry, in a lesson on fruit and other things. This passage of the two sons, this story of the two sons, sort of, uh, weighs in with all of what I talked there uh, in those other places about when it comes to living as a disciple in the kingdom of God, is when it comes to being a follower of Jesus, 
All right. Uh, what matters most is what a person does more than what they say. All right. Uh, and this is with discipleship. I hope you understand the difference. Uh, we receive eternal life by believing in Jesus for it. Uh, that is how we become a child of God. We are justified. Okay. Uh, now, once we are a believer, once we have eternal life, Jesus then calls us to follow him on the path of discipleship. And the requirements and standards and calls are much different here. Here's where now we have calls to obedience and faithfulness and, and living for Jesus and following where he leads. Okay, This is not so we can go to heaven when we die, get forgiveness of sins, anything like that. No, that the call to discipleship is so that we can leave our sin behind, and experience the joys and blessings of being in the family of God. It's much different uh, call, much different results, much different requirements. Jesus here is talking about this second aspect, about discipleship and following Jesus. And uh, so he is saying that the tax collectors and the prostitutes have a better chance of this, are better off than the religious leaders, than the chief priests and the elders of the community. Let's look at this passage a little bit more detail, look at sort of three key contextual elements that help us understand what Jesus is saying, why the tax collectors and prostitutes are better off than the religious spiritual leaders, and sort of also how that's going to help you and I live our lives as followers of Jesus. So first of all, what was wrong with the spiritual leaders? What was wrong with these chief priests and elders of the people? Back in Matthew 21, 23, the religious teachers ask Jesus where he gets his authority from, okay, for his teachings and actions. They say, by what authority are you doing these things? And, uh, you know, who gave you this authority? You need to understand that in the days of Jesus, rabbis and priests and elders, they based their authority on which rabbis they had studied under. Okay, or which rabbinical school they belonged to. So, for example, if a particular teacher had not learned from a reputable or a famous rabbi, then uh, you didn't have to listen to what they say because, oh, you can't trust him. He didn't study under, you know, the famous rabbi, the well-known rabbi. There are really two rabbinical schools. If you weren't part of one of them, one of these accepted rabbinical schools of the time, then, oh, you don't have to listen to him. You know, he doesn't belong to either of the 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 common, well-accepted rabbinical schools. You don't need to listen to him. You don't need to follow what he says. And so that's what the religious leaders are basically challenging Jesus on. Which rabbi did you study under? Which rabbinical school are you part of, Jesus? We want to know where you're coming from so that we can know whether or not we have to listen to what you say. To be honest, it's very much like Christianity today. Uh, it's not uncommon. I've been to so many pastors' conferences and gatherings of spiritual leaders, um, in the last several decades, it's very, very common when you when you meet other pastors, or I suppose it's even common in any Christian Bible study or circle when you, when you find out there's other Christians around. Um, but the, the questions usually go, you know, what school did you go to? What seminary did you attend? Uh, how large is your church? Right? How many books have you written? Oh, what? How big is your podcast? You know, how many followers on social media and Twitter and Facebook do you have? Right, this sort of a, an idea, and what are those sorts of questions? Well, they're ways of saying, "Do I need to listen to you, or can I ignore you?" <laughs> right? 
I mean, in general, in Christianity, is someone going to listen to a person who has a church of 10,000 or a church of someone who has a church of 100? Well, you know the answer. In general, most people are going to say, oh, he has a church of 10,000 people. He, 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 he must have something to say. Whereas this guy over here, church of 100? Eh, I don't need to listen to him. Okay? We today, just like the spiritual leaders in the days of Jesus, are often asking people, What's your authority to say these things? Right? I would challenge you. If you refuse to listen to certain teachers because they don't have a PhD from your favorite seminary, uh, or because they're not on staff with a megachurch, or because they are not a best-selling author, or don't have a giant following on social media, uh, (laughs) the warning for you is that you have fallen into the same trap that Jesus is speaking to here. All right, so you must be very careful of that mindset because the warning Jesus gives the religious leaders here is a similar warning that he would say to you or to me. Uh, You're going to have trouble experiencing the kingdom of God, friend, if that mindset, if you keep up that mindset. All right, so that's, that's the problem that the religious leaders had. Now, the second thing that's going to help us with understanding these words of Jesus is understanding the nature of the kingdom of God. And I've already mentioned this. Let me just go through it briefly. Lots of people, when they read this text or any text in the New Testament, which talks about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, they think Jesus is referring to heaven. Okay, so when Jesus says, for example, in this passage, that the tax collectors and the prostitutes are closer to entering the kingdom of God than the then the religious leaders, people say, oh, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, they have a better chance of going to heaven than the religious leaders. No, that is not what Jesus is saying at all. The kingdom of heaven is not the same thing as heaven. Okay? Uh, I've talked about this before. I cover it in great detail in the Gospel Dictionary Online course, in the lesson on the kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven is the rule and reign of heaven, or the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of God. Uh, And yes, it will exist and occur and happen in eternity. But really, when you look at the way the the phrases the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven are used in the Bible, they refer to God's rule and reign in our lives here and now, on this earth, during our lifetime. It's a discipleship term. When Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, it's two terms for the same concept, he is saying, look, during your life now, do you want to experience God's life in you? (laughs) Do you want to experience the best that God has for you in this life? Do you want to know God's will for your life, how you should live, how to get the most out of your relationships, out of your friendships, out of your job, out of your finances? Do you want to know what God wants for your life here and now on this earth? If so, listen to what I'm telling you about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Follow my example so that you can experience it. Okay, Entering or inheriting or experiencing the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, it's not about going to heaven or entering heaven when we die, nothing like that. It's about experiencing or entering into the experience of God's rule and reign in our life now, on this earth, okay? So, 
Uh, Jesus is not saying here that the tax collectors and the prostitutes have a better chance of going to heaven when they die than the chief priests and the elders do. <laughs> no, uh, everybody, when it comes to eternal life, everybody has the same chance, which is 100% chance if they believe in Jesus for eternal life. Eternal life is offered freely to everybody. Uh, all they do is believe in Jesus to receive it. And uh, it's a done deal. Okay, so uh, I suppose it could be argued, maybe, that the the um, religious leaders, you know, they're self-righteous, they're puffed up. Oh, look at me, how great I am. I don't need eternal life. I can, I can do a good job on my own. And, you know, that's an okay way uh, to think about them and, and maybe lots of religious leaders today. But Jesus is not talking about eternal life in this passage. And so that would be a mistake to think that that's the truth Jesus is teaching here. He's, he's not talking about eternal life at all. Yes, the religious leaders might be puffed up and hypocritical and self-righteous, but that's not Jesus' point as far as the kingdom of God is concerned. He's not talking about eternal life, okay? So, uh, that's the kingdom of God. It is not, or the kingdom of heaven. It is not heaven. It is the rule and reign of God in our lives here and now on this earth. All right, so all that put together then, why are the tax collectors and the prostitutes closer to entering the kingdom of God than are the religious leaders, the chief priests, and the elders. I believe that the answer to this lies in what tax collectors and prostitutes value versus what religious leaders tend to value, right? And how both of these sets of values, these different sets of values, line up with the values of the kingdom. Now, Jesus, I'm speaking generally here, <laughs> Uh, these are not true across the board for all tax collectors or, or prostitutes or um, religious leaders then or now. But in general, I think it can be said that religious leaders and spiritual te teachers tend to live hypocritical lives. I'm speaking of myself here as well. I see hypocrisy in, in my life every day all the time, what I teach versus what I do. And it's something that I'm continually battling. But in general, it tends to be true that spiritual leaders are fairly hypocritical. And I'm a spiritual leader, and I'm speaking to myself. Uh, we teach generosity, but then what do we do? We hoard up money and possessions for ourselves. Uh, we call for grace, mercy, forgiveness. What do we do? We extend very little of such things to other people. All right. Uh, religious leaders, we often tend to see ourselves as superior in intellect. Ooh, I've been to seminary, right? Uh, and more righteous. Well, I do a better job of following God's commands than my neighbor does, right? Um, especially over the uneducated people of society. Look at all of those ignorant fools out there not knowing what God wants. They're headed for hell. They're off on their way to the path of destruction, okay? Uh, religious leaders generally, again, speaking of myself here, uh, only listen to and have time for people who are part of their own close-knit circle of religious friends. Um, if, if you've been in church for any length of time, it's, it's, it's unlikely that you have that many good, close friends who do not go to church. Just the nature of Christianity and religion in general. The longer you're in church, the fewer unchurched people you know or are friends with. And you say, well, that's just Jeremy because, you know, that's whatever the excuse might be. Well, look, 
Now, do an experiment. Stop attending church uh, for, say, a year. Maybe give it two years. And don't tell your Christian friends at church that it's just for a year or two. Now, what's going to happen is for the first couple of weeks, month or two, they will call you. They will check up on you. Hey, Joe, I miss seeing you in church on Sunday. Everything okay? Yeah, yeah, fine. I'm just taking a break. You know, just just wanted to to, to sit at home and relax. And I, I, I'm still I'm still a believer. I, I still follow Jesus, but I just I don't know about this whole church thing anymore. Okay, I guarantee you, within a couple of years, your church quote unquote friends will no longer be calling you, no longer coming around, no longer inviting you over for food, no longer checking up on you to see how things are. Why? Because in general, Christian people today only have time for friends or other people in their same group, in the same club. Okay, and that's, that's sadly how it works. Um, tax collectors and prostitutes, on the other hand, look, they're blatant sinners. Nobody's going to deny that. And in fact, uh, they themselves often know it. Now, they may not say that what they're doing is sinful, it's survival, or it's taking advantage of the situation, or the, whatever, but they know that they're not the best people in society, in general. And therefore, guess what? They don't suffer from the same spiritual pride and the self-righteousness, the puffed-up arrogance that spiritual re- religious leaders tend to suffer from. Um, in, in general, because they know we're you know, not the best people in society. They tend to be more humble. Well, that's a characteristic of the kingdom of God, isn't it? Humility. They tend to be more welcoming of other people. You know, more, uh, I'm going to overlook your faults because, look, I got plenty of my own. Jesus said something about that, didn't he? About not helping your brother with the speck in his eye when you got a plank in your own. Boy, that's a characteristic of the kingdom of God. They tend to be more welcoming and joyful, trying to enjoy the good things in life rather than dour and sour about life and down about everybody, condemning everybody. Um, tend to be more relational. Look, you want to come and hang out? Let's have fun. Um, spiritual elites, spiritual leaders, not so much. They know they're sinners. Tax collectors, prostitutes know they're sinners and so are more ready to admit to their sin to God. You know, if they're, they're, if God shows up in their life in one way or another, they're not going to argue with God about, you know, I'm a pretty good person. God, you know, I messed up a lot in my life. And I'm, in fact, I'm not sure you even want me part of your family. God, did you know what I've done? Okay. Um, but as a result, they're more willing to accept other people regardless of how sinful those other people might be. Again, I challenge you to find religious leaders who will do the same thing. You know, we're fine with a certain level of sin in the lives of other people, but you get some of those really big sins, and religious leaders will shun such people faster than you can blink an eye. All right, so tax collectors and prostitutes. Look, they might be big-time sinners, but they're not hypocritical about it. They know who they are. They don't try to hide it. Uh, As a result, they often value freedom, liberty, yeah, just live and let live, let people do what they want, sort of an idea. Honor, loyalty, friendship, above all else. Uh, and these characteristics match the values of the kingdom of God. Jesus says these people are closer to entering the kingdom of God than are the hypocritical religious leaders. 
Now, look, these are common, these are, these are generalized comparisons. I get it. Not all of this is true of every person, whether religious leader or tax collector, prostitute across the board. I get it. Okay. <laughs> Jesus isn't saying, I, you know, tax collectors and prostitutes are better in every way than spiritual leaders. He's just saying when it comes to the values of the kingdom of God, guess what? Uh, we religious leaders can learn something from the quote unquote dregs of society. That's how religious people think, right? Got, got to stop thinking about other people that way. That's not a value of the kingdom of God, right? So uh, the, the tax collectors, uh, when it comes to comparing the tax collectors and the, the uh, prostitutes uh, and also the religious leaders and the elders with the two sons in that parable, well, obviously, the tax collectors and the harlots are the first son. Look, God says, do this, do this. And the tax collectors and prostitutes say, no, I'm not doing that. I'm going to go do this instead. But when it comes to actually living their life, what do they do? They act out the values of the kingdom of God. It's a surprising claim by Jesus here. Meanwhile, the second son, the religious leaders and the elders and the pastors and the Bible teachers and the scholars, God says, do this and do this. And we say, sure thing, God, right on it. But then what do we do? We live in arrogant lives and hypocritical and judgmental, and we shun people and we talk bad about people. We look down upon people. We judge people. An exact opposite of the values of the kingdom of God. Okay, so uh, although the tax collectors and the prostitutes and sinners in general, quote unquote sinners, uh, though many people think they are the farthest from what God wants, Jesus says, yeah, think again. In many ways, they are closer to the kingdom of God than anyone imagines. Look, the lesson from Jesus in this account is simple. Regardless of your position, your station, your training, your education, your background, your occupation, how much you have sinned in your past or maybe are currently sinning right now in your life, if you want to experience the rule and reign of God in your life, don't depend on your own righteousness, on your own education, on your own abilities. Don't look down on other people who might be in some ways inferior to yourself. That's the way you think about it. Instead, live as Jesus lived. Take some lessons from the tax collectors and the prostitutes. Live with generosity, kindness, patience, grace, mercy, love, and liberty to all, whether or not they are part of your group, club, organization, or church. The kingdom of God is experienced by those who open their arms wide to embrace all others. It is based on relationships of love rather than on the regulations of law. And I'm going to leave that right there. Thanks for listening. This has been another episode of the Redeeming God podcast, and I hope that some of what you learned today has changed your view of God, changed your view of Scripture, changed your view of other people, and maybe, hopefully also, changed your view of yourself. All right, we'll see you next week when we look at some more current events, a letter from a reader or a listener, and also consider another biblical text. See you then.